Welcome to Making Sense of the Madness. I'm your host, Sean Morgan. We're going to question the mainstream narrative and expose media propaganda with Jim Cutler and Paul Ferber. Jim Cutler is from EtherealSea.com, and he's got his analysis about devolution, how it connects with the economic warfare. And Paul Ferber is going to talk to us today about the new Trump-RICO filing. This is going to be really interesting. Stay with us. Welcome to Making Sense of the Madness. I'm here with Jim Cutler and Paul Ferber. Let's dig right into it, guys. I want to talk to you both about how war has changed. You know, the last major global conflict so long ago, uh, you know, but it involved nuclear weapons. It involved a lot of bombs, World War II. Um, now we're in World War III, in my opinion. It's been going on actually for a while, but it's, it's irregular warfare, unconventional warfare. We're talking about information cyber, psychological, and economic warfare. So uh, from that 40,000-foot view, I'll, I'll call on you first, Jim. Uh, why do you think it's important to connect the economic warfare with the continuity of government? What's your insight on that? Well, I'll start out by saying that there's a saying that goes, all wars are bankers' wars. And when you look at World War One and Two in particular, you can see um, just how deeply involved the banking families were, uh, particularly the Rothschilds, uh, in fomenting those engagements. Uh, and then, of course, the Bolshevik Revolution, where the Rothschilds said specifically, we're going to take the Romanovs out. And so they did. But getting back to the present, um, financial systems underlie everything because, of course, there's huge money to be made in um, the arms industry. And we all remember Eisenhower's parting words about, you know, beware of the uh, in military industrial complex. But in terms of continuity of government, um, again, we have to keep in mind that um, the things that run this world now are, are in more and more financial-based. When you look at how the banks operate, it's no longer just dollars being held in a bank and then being loaned out. We've got all of these very, very complicated derivatives and, and other instruments of investments that you know, are really operated by mathematicians. And those are tied to the commodities market in a big way, particularly with things like precious metals. So, um, you know, there's another saying that he who has the gold makes the rules. So getting your, um, you know, edge in terms of the money to get your way is critical. It's a foundational aspect of war. And when it comes to continuity yeah. of government, it cannot be ignored. Yeah, I'll, I'm definitely going to ask you a follow-up question, uh, see how this connects with devolution. Uh, but I'm going to call on Paul Ferber now to discuss the fact that in World War II, we had the Axis and the Allies. You know, there's a clear demarcation between the two sides and the two groups that were against each other. And it was fascism versus democracy, supposedly. 
the free world versus the the side that wanted to uh, you know do genocides and enslave people basically. Mm-hmm. And now we've got this very strange kind of mirror image of World War II here, where you have the free world. Uh, you know, we're talking about U.S., EU, Canada, Australia, and Japan, and South Korea versus. Uh, Russia and China, India, Brazil. I mean, this is just mm. weird to have the bad guys be us this time. Because and the reason why I say that is because uh, the bio labs that are um, being discovered in Ukraine, uh, that this whole the whole idea of Ukraine as a black site for the deep state, and the fact that mm. uh, Russia is really doing some interesting. Uh, expose of the deep state in, in the United States and China's totally on board and they're calling out the US. And we've got this very, very strong economic block. They call it BRIC, you know, Brazil, uh, you know, India, Russia, uh, and China. It's it's B-R-I-C. I know I did that out of order, but <laughs> the point is that this economic warfare is really going into high gear. We've got uh, Russia talking about mm. Natural energy, uh, natural gas, oil, energy sales, and so forth in rubles, gold, and Bitcoin. And you've got Saudi Arabia selling oil in, in Chinese currency. This is really, really big. This could be the death of the dollar. So, Paul, can you give us some insight into these two different sides and how economic warfare is playing out? Yeah, that war today seems to be. Um, I read the other day, I think it was on the SACA. War seems to be, um, it seems to be 80% informational, 15% economic, and only 5% kinetic. But I, I, th- I think the two sides are really, if we dig, if we dig down, they are a small um, cadre of global elites, a small group of the elites who run the world versus the rest of us. So, you know, the American people, for instance, are certainly not at war with the people of Ukraine. But the American Congress and Senate and most of the executive branch in the Biden administration most definitely are at war in Ukraine because they don't want what's what they've been up to being exposed there. I've been browsing through videos of various representatives um, from the U.S. visiting Ukraine in December 2016. So a month after President Trump was elected. They're going to Ukraine and they're saying, guys, you need to get on with this Donbass operation. And they're talking to, you know, the Nazi battalion and they're saying, you need to you need to hurry up uh, as regards Donbass. So why? Well, of course, we know why is because they needed to accelerate whatever they were doing in Ukraine. I mean, they were going to attack Russia with nuclear and with bioweapons. Um, no question. And uh, Putin's operation is designed to counter that as far as the realignment of global economics is going i think yeah this is this is it that the bills are now coming due the problem is that the us no longer has a manufacturing base and well let me just step back a bit in 1971 when britain woods happened um the u the us went to not even saudi arabia they went to the house of saud so they went to the Saudi royal family and they said, in exchange for military protection, will you sell oil oil in dollars? So what happened was the Saudi Arabia then switched to selling oil in dollars. 
and the dollar became effectively the petrodollar. Because there's global demand for oil, you had the dollar's value being artificially driven up by people buying oil because everyone needs oil, but you have to buy it in dollars. Now we're seeing this gigantic shift in that Saudi Arabia is not even taking Biden or Blinken's calls. They are like floating the idea of paying for oil in rubles. India, part of the BRICS, S by the way, is South Africa. You forgot us. It's okay. We don't, we don't count for much economically, but India does. Uh, China does. China is probably going to buy oil in um, in one. India is buying it in oil in rubles. Saudi Arabia is thinking of dealing with Russia directly. That is massive. That means that the dollar is no longer going to be propped up by global trade in oil, which means all of a sudden that now what is the dollar's real value? I don't think it's a whole lot if it isn't being artificially propped up anymore. And especially not if, I mean, imagine in in the days of the petrodollar, um, companies with excess dollars would go and park those dollars in US treasuries, treasury bonds. Now, let's say the dollar moves to, uh, you know, the ruble. We have the, the, the petro ruble. Then what... The dollar now suddenly, you know, U.S. Treasuries don't, aren't particularly attractive anymore because, uh, the, you know, where, where's the value? Where's the uh, the full faith and credit of the U.S. government over a period of 30 years that can kind of guarantee a rate of return? Not that there's a whole lot of return, of course, because the Federal Reserve is keeping interests low so that uh, the U.S. can finance, you know, can, can play finance on the never-never. I, I've, I've been watching this for 20 years, and I'm really worried that this is it, that the the dollar is going to crash. Probably, when I say now, I mean it's going to be within two years. It's going to be a big crash. And if that happens, the U.S. won't be able to finance itself anymore, and things will then get ugly at home. So who knows? I mean, yeah, yeah, and it's certainly a moment of weakness. Uh, it, it's a moment of weakness when the global superpower uh, can be uh, taken in that 5% uh, kinetic, mm. right? It's when uh, China and Russia develop their military uh, numbers and technology to the point where they can take on a superpower. Uh, now, that's, that's a possibility. That's just one way that this could go. I certainly hope that we can all figure out how to split up the power. And that's kind of how we had peace after World War II, right? We just said, okay, you know, USSR, you can keep half of Germany. You can keep uh, Eastern Europe and, and we'll all just mm. divide the power. Uh, but there is that danger that if the dollar dies and there's no one, no Trump <laughs> savior to pick us back up, uh, then that would be a moment of weakness that a Russia, Russia, Russo, Sinai, Sino, you know, alliance could do a military attack. Uh, and, and really, just go for the go for the jugular. Um, I, I really, so I really don't. You said think you've been Russia watching this for twenty years. Well, no, I've been watching. The yeah, dollar. I don't think I don't think no, yeah. necessarily either one of them are interested in, in uh, taking over the world. No. But then again, no. you know, that is what people do when there's a power vacuum. They try to fill it. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, well, economic well, power is enough, but they won't want to well, have try to have military power. Well, some nutcases. I mean, I'm reminded of Dr. Strangelove. You know, hello, Dimitri. 
You know, sorry, one of our men has gone funny in the head. A classic film from uh, early 60s by Stanley Kubrick. You know, and the president of the United States phones up his counterpart, Dimitri, can you turn the music down, please? And he he says, you know, one of our one of our generals went funny in the head and has launched a hydrogen bomb against you. That that's what worries me enormously about a an economic, um, if not a collapse, then certainly a serious depression for the United States, is that some neocon somewhere decides, you know, screw it, we need to do something. And you know we need to we need to launch an attack against Russia. Um, the Russian, the whole thing of mutually assured destruction and the whole West's philosophy. Um, I was reading something the other day about by Dominic Cummings, who's a very informed individual, who was very close to um, the UK's prime minister for a number of years, and he pointed out that. When Russia collapsed, you know, the scholars of nuclear theory went across to Russia and asked asked them what they really thought of nuclear war, and they studied their documents. And it turns out the Russians were Russians were always in favor of immediate heavy nuclear attack. So all this idea of no, the Russians will never nuke because nobody will be first to pull the trigger was nonsense. The problem with believing that nonsense is then the West has used it as an excuse to wage conventional war and get involved in destabilization with the idea that Russia will never retaliate in kind, when of course it is going to. And I think what Putin said the other day, everyone said, oh, nu nu no, nukes are on the table, Putin is threatening nuclear war. No, he's just saying that, he's just saying that we have always thought like this. If you are going to attack us, we're going to nuke you. So it's... <laughs> You know, it's a subtle difference, but it, it's kind of magical thinking by the West. And it worries me that some idiot with power, I, d I don't know how, you know, how they're going to convince NATO. To, I mean, what's the old proverb? Never get involved in a land war in Asia. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Don't get involved in a land war in Asia. I mean, that's from the movie The Princess Bride. But, I love that quote. <laughs> yeah, it, it's wonderful. Yeah, and it's quite true. Ask Napoleon, ask Adolf Hitler. You just don't right. do it. Well, really, what um, we found is it's not a good idea to get into any type of insurgency, entrenched guerrilla-type warfare anywhere. Uh, mm. Look how the United States has failed in, in Central America and Afghanistan and Vietnam and all, all that. Uh, so, so, yeah, well, let, let's try to figure out a different way or else we'll be a, a perpetual war. Uh, Jim, can you bring this back to, to continuity of government? It's supposed to be Devolution Friday. And, and <laughs> right. Well, track. I mean, here's where, um, you know, the history of it. Like, I want to I point to the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. Note that right after that, uh, that happened, the United States went into Kosovo. So you have this, we didn't miss a moment. We didn't skip a beat. We immediately went into Yugoslavia and that area and bombed the crap out of them to send a message to Putin that, hey, <laughs> okay, this is, we're, this is the new game and this is what we're doing. So in terms of operations of the United States at that time, they were ensuring their continuity through uh, proxy wars to slowly encroach toward Russia. Russia, from everything I've studied, has always been the target going way back. And so it was business as usual. 
continue to encroach, tell them whatever they wanted to hear. Yeah, no, we won't send NATO any another inch closer to you. Well, anybody who would believe that doesn't know the United States. And so this is exactly what has happened. And I will make another point about continuity of government. Mutual assured destruction requires the owners of nuclear weapons to state openly, yeah, we're going to use them. You fuck with us, we're going to use them. There's no point in having them if you don't follow it up with that rhetoric. So that kind of talk doesn't surprise me at all. Thank God we've not come to a point where that had to be proven out that they wouldn't use them. But I can't imagine Putin not making sure that everybody in the State Department and everybody in the DOD knew very clearly that if they crossed lines, that those were going to come flying at them. And of course, that's the end of everything. There's nothing after that. I mean, anybody knows anything yeah. about nuclear winter, you know, knows just one one back and forth and we're done. So, you know, I, I tend to look at those with that kind of perspective and say, okay, this is why we haven't had nuclear exchange because it's so much easier to just work through proxies. And this is exactly what we've done. This is our continuity of government. Now, what we have now with Trump coming into office um, jolted everything. Now, continuity of government meant something additional as opposed to what it used to mean. Now it means preparing for things that are possibly going to happen, one of which is the loss of the dollar as the reserve currency. That is a I won't call it a natural disaster, but believe me, that is a disaster. And it is going to affect the government. It is going to affect how we operate in this country. And we're going to have uh, serious um, crowd control problems. And we're going to have serious rogue issues because now you've got very powerful people who are losing their shirts and they want answers and they're not going to take them lying down. They're going to have their, they're going to be, their face is going to be in the middle of these things going, you better do something or I'm going to get my guys together and we're going to do it for you. And that's chaos. And that's the kind of chaos that the elites don't like because they're not in control now. It's out of their hands. Mm -hmm. Things are running down the rails as they ought to. But I, I want to say that continuity of government is also getting and making sure you've got a handle on the nuclear stockpile. This is where Trump came into office making sure that the control of that nuclear stockpile was his and nobody else's, which is why, mm. it, and I do follow this, I do believe that he still is the commander in chief and he still has control through those commanders of the nuclear stockpile. And I can tell you, I would be shocked if this wasn't true, that he has talked about this ad nauseum with Putin and Xi Jinping. Because I'm looking at the situation right. now, and it can't be happening like this without those conversations happening. There's too much at stake. Right. It's too complex, and there's too too many piece parts to um, good to point. Control. It's not yeah. like Trump would bow out, let them steal the election, and then allow his you know 
pride and joy, the United States of America become vulnerable for an attack from an, uh, another right. superpower. So yeah, I do believe uh, I do believe the devolution theory from from Patel Patriot that he he's developed quite well, where he states that yeah, there are combatant commanders and they are the ones that the the uh, decision making regarding those weapons of mass destruction have been devolved to those combatant commanders. And that Joe Biden doesn't have any control over those whatsoever. <laughs> hmm. um, um, so, so yeah, I, I want to go back to something Paul said about uh, the United States not having a manufacturing base, because this has been a big scheme of the deep state for a long time to purposefully collapse America and, and to transfer that uh, that shift of power to China, where they do make stuff there, and they make stuff of value in China for the whole world and not just, uh, you know, dollar store crap. They have high technology and a lot of people don't realize how advanced the manufacturing is in China. So they have a lot of cards, right? And they, they have uh, a lot of power and the deep state's been giving them that power, purposefully declining the United States. But it seems like China's gone rogue and they don't want to have anything to do with Davos and the other globalists. That's why you have George Soros writing articles about how Xi Jinping is the worst guy in the world. So, uh, Paul, can I get your comment on, on this idea that, that the Great Reset, the globalists, they want to destroy the dollar. The question is, who's going to pick up the pieces? Where is that power going to be shifted to? And if it's a rogue China, then Davos is just as unhappy as having the United States be the, the lone superpower. I think the original plan was for, well, I know what the original plan was for. It was leaked by, um, it was leaked by that whistleblower who sat in on a meeting of some senior people in London. The one day it was a meeting he should never been invited to. Um, they wanted, their plan was to uh, war with Russia, nuclear war with Russia. That would have been provoked by President Hillary. Um, and then China would have caught a cold. So the pandemic would have, uh, the pandemic would have, uh, you know, absolutely wiped China out, uh, basically. Um, unfortunately, the, the Chinese weren't stupid and they were developing their own virus and it got out by accident or by design using uh, US research. So that, and that of course was Corona, which, uh, you know, we all know about the global pandemic. I think China's position is a bit strange. It's like a, it's like the third party who's waiting in the wings and who's not aligned to anyone. They're, yeah, they, they hate the new world order with passion. That's even more than say Trump and Putin do. Um, but they're, 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 for a start, they're in trouble in some ways. Their manufacturing base is brilliant. But because they don't care about the environment and environmental regulations and looking after, you know, the country that they're in, they hardly have any potable water left. They have tremendous problems with pollution. About 25% of their soil is poisoned because, yeah, the country competes at a sovereign level. That's why its little electronic widgets cost a few cents per thousand less than anyone else in the world. It's because the CCP will build an entire city with railroads and blocks of flats and very advanced factories, as you say, Sean. I mean, incredibly advanced stuff. And that sometimes will not even be turned on. 
it's just in case they need to, you know, compete in a certain market, they, they will do that. But they will not care about environmental regulations or pollutions. And as a result, they're, they're in trouble. They do. I mean, we have Xi on tape um, saying that he wanted Alaska and, uh, you know, the West Coast, of the United States. So long term, is China going to be an aggressor? Yeah, I think so. Um, unless something happens to them. But in the short, you know, now and for the and the medium term, they are absolutely going to align with Russia. Russia has been carefully um, developing economic ties to China quite happily now for the past eight to ten years, maybe even longer. They, all their lovely commodities like gas and oil and uranium and wheat and all the good stuff, actual hard physical items yeah. that uh, Russia can sell to the world, it's quite, it's quite happy to sell them to China and Southeast Asia and India and Brazil, no problem. Um, the US has become a service economy where you can just replace one service worker by another. You know, one Amazon packer is much the same as another. But you know, in in a in say a complex in in energy economy, well, like Russia's uh, Russia's economy, I believe is about twenty five to thirty percent energy based, so oil and gas and whatever. You can't just pull workers out and replace them with Joe Schmoes off the street. You you know that's a complex thing. You've got a you know it's it's a it's a resilient thing. It's it's a real thing. You're producing real things out of the ground. Um, I remember Bill Cooper on his radio show years ago used to say, "There's three ways you can add value to this planet. You can mine, you know, you can mine something out of the ground. You can grow it, or you can make it. You know, you can make something that wasn't there before. Um, and the U.S. isn't doing that. And instead, it's just been, you know, printing things in in an attempt to keep financing itself." Russia, yeah. It is yeah, the future, somewhat yeah, like the a pyramid the, scheme where they're just printing right. a bunch of money and so they can buy yeah. all the real stuff from the other exactly. countries. Uh, yeah. Big tech exception see, to that because we do have a lot of intellectual property. No, but we sure, got to take a quick sure. break. When we get back, we'll get your final, uh, final summary about that, Paul. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. This is John Michael Chambers, the creator and founder of American Media Periscope. Family, finances, faith, and freedom are four things that most of us would do almost anything to protect. At American Media Periscope, we trust the team at Sovereign Advisors with financial advice. With over 27 years of experience, a team that believes in people over profit and shares our views that family, finances, faith, and freedom need to be protected can help you protect your finances from erosion due to governmental policies that are out of our control. What is in our control? Our own decision to act or to not act. At American Media Periscope, we encourage you to act. Action changes things. Call Sovereign Advisors today, ask your Dr. Kirk Elliott, and start working with a team that will help you protect your retirement assets while sharing your desire to protect family, faith, and freedom. Call them today at 720 605 3900 and tell them john michael chambers sent you remember freedom it's up to us welcome back we're talking to independent journalist paul ferber from paulferber.net and researcher jim cutler from etherealc.com paul you were just talking about china and, and the general discussion was the russian chinese alliance versus the west and and, and the economic mm -hmm. 
uh, war that's going on. You can uh, complete your, your thought there, Paul, and we'll go back to Jim. I, I was just going to make the point that um, well, the West is trying to commit suicide. Russia does not care if Europe doesn't want to buy its gas. It has a ready market in China already and India already. Yeah, Jen Psaki can sort of snipe from the, you know, the press office and say that India needs to be on the right side of history. But no, people need oil. They need energy. They need gas. They need food. And I'm starting to hear rumors of food rationing in certain countries in Europe already because, yeah, Russia, Ukraine and Belarus together is a ridiculously large percentage of the global wheat market, wheat export market. I mean, wheat, wheat futures just went through the roof uh, about two weeks ago when it became clear that um, Putin would succeed in Ukraine, which he is. So I, I think that the economic war is just getting started and that the West's leadership are trying to commit suicide. Well, they're trying because sanctions and things like that never hurt the elites. They, they don't even care if they're even aware well, yeah. that they're going on. I, I mean, a, they a always good hurt example the middle of class. this is they're, they're, they're banning exports from Russia, energy exports, so they can't bring in oil, but then they won't, you know, allow us to create to to you know for example the keystone pipeline to have our own oil so so when you you can't have exports and you can't mm. produce it yourself then what are you stuck with mm. well the situation yeah. that we're in now and is going to get worse a, a crisis an energy crisis where the prices are too high and just like you said it mm. hurts the middle class uh, this is an economic warfare against us right it's it's not yeah. nation to nation like you said it's the elite yeah. versus the rest of us so Paul, uh, I'm sure you've been collecting your notes about the next thing you, that you would like to comment on. Go ahead, uh, uh, Jim. Well, I look at this, again, I'm a believer in the plan. So I look at the timeline here. 2014, the United States gets involved with Maidan and, and foments the Orange Revolution in Ukraine and uh, puts our guy and we basically take over that country. And who do we put in in the, you know, the boots on the ground there is the Azov Battalion and right sector. I mean, we are the Nazis. Um, I'm, I'm not happy to say, um, but it's clear that that was our intention. Now, Hillary thought she was going to win in 2000, you know, in 2016. So when they did that whole thing, that was with the proviso that she was going to be in the White House. So clearly they are in plan B right now. And the decision to give them the White House and let them execute their plan B, which Trump and everybody else had a plan for. So they could handle whatever they came up with for plan B because they knew what the game was and they were all working together. So it's a number of countries now working together against the United States and the uh, European bloc. So um, that's the chessboard. That's the chess game. And everybody's got to move and a counter move. And it all involves, you know, a swift system and, uh, sanctions and all this stuff. And you can see how those are playing out. And uh, But you can tell that um, who's got the upper hand in this, and it's not us. Um, and it will continue to play out. That tells me that yeah. uh, the plan was we are going into a multipolar world. That, that couldn't have been 
anything other right. than a fait accompli when Trump was in office. So the question was, yeah. what's his job? in this country to help prepare this country. And again, we're coming back to continuity of government now when a multipolar world takes shape. And so that there is your, your, your groundwork for making sure that uh, that process happens and it happens calmly. It happens orderly so that people don't freak out and get all uh, crazy in the head. That had to have been a very high priority on their part because there's it's very difficult to maintain control in such a chaotic situation if you haven't planned to help people get through it without losing their, their minds. So the more I yeah. look at it, the more it's clear that that was the plan, what Trump did was what he needed to do. And then putting Biden in was actually beautiful because then it just nails the coffin shut with a hundred nails. And at that point, nothing can stop this. Now it's like, oh, okay, now I see what you're talking about. Yeah. Nothing is going to stop this. And everybody's acting like that. Saudi Arabia is acting like that. China, India, look at their yeah, rhetoric. There's quite a lot of they bravado, mix. right? When Saudi Arabia Big just time. says, how can I take your calls? Yes. I'm selling oil in, in Chinese currency. Mm-hmm. That That is yep. just unprecedented in the world stage. But yep. everyone feels totally confident in making these moves. India and, and, and Brazil and so forth, they feel confident in aligning with right. uh, Russia and China. Uh, but, you know, it's funny, Jim, when you say us, because you and I are Americans and this is the American media periscope. So so when we talk about Hillary Clinton and the State Department, we feel like, oh, my gosh, we are the Nazis. But it's not us, of course. The United States has no. a deep state. Right. But the funny thing is, yep. so does every other country. There, it's not like yep. all of Russia is good or, or bad or all of China is good or bad. We've got these elites, the, the, you know, and I hate using that word because they're not elite. They think they are. Uh, but yeah, they, they are the billionaire class and, uh, and so forth. So yeah, that's, that's what we're working against. And I agree with the idea of multipolar versus unipolar. Unipolar uh, is, is Davos, the globalists, versus mm-hmm. everybody else. And multipolar means we have regional powers that police their own regions. And this is something that Trump really did introduce during his term is the idea that, hey, yeah, we man. don't have to be the world's policemen anymore. Uh, you know, fighting foreign wars forever is, is not going to be a thing anymore. Um, this is not going to, it's going to be a win-win for everyone. And look how much respect right. he gave to other world powers when he was talking about Putin Absolutely. and Xi. It's like, hey, these are my best friends instead of these are my enemies, right? right? So, well, it's um, like how they talk. You know, they, they use the word partners all the time. Every speech that I've listened to that Putin has given, he uses the word partners, our partners in the U.S., our partners in the EU. And it's like, yeah, he never disparages. And in that way, remains above the fray. He is a good statesman and a good speaker. Yeah, a what, what a contrast speaker. to Biden calling uh, Putin a war criminal. Yes. Uh, you know, you right. get, get on Sean Hannity's show and those, the, the pressure people to call Putin a killer. Like, like they want to get that out of the, these politicians. Is he a killer? Is he a killer? Is he a murderer? Is he, you know? So, so they just try to uh, get that antagonism, that uh, adversarial uh, dynamic going between these statesmen, between these, uh, you know, 
These people who have the power to, to do nuclear war, I don't know why they want to try to right. get them into a well, war. Well, they want to um, threaten, you know, they just want to threaten and threaten and threaten. But this is the thing, and I think this is probably, the, to me, the one of the more important aspects. It's that it's no longer a world of countries. It is a world of non-empathic, sick people who have amassed an enormous amount of wealth, who are buying up resources and pushing everybody around. And those people who are normal, like us, who are like, hey, man, I don't want to fight. I just want to carry on and raise my kids and do a business and live my life out. We need to start looking at the world that way. You know, stop with the borders, stop with the lines of demarcation and look at like, well, I'm I want to work with people like that. And if they're running Russia right. or China or Saudi Arabia or any other place, it's like, good. That's who I want to work yeah. with. Not these. And idiots. I have, you know, with the big PR campaign of supporting Ukraine, I can relate to the idea that when there's a war torn country, you don't want to have uh, a bunch of people hurting in Ukraine. So the, the people of Ukraine, I, I do stand with them, but I'm also standing with the people of Russia who are having those sanctions against them. They, they lost, you know, almost 50% of their, their savings value overnight when the ruble crashed. Luckily it's, it's making a recovery, but they can't travel sometimes, you know, uh, a lot of their businesses are, are going bankrupt. This is very, very difficult. Of course, they're getting deplatformed all over the place. Uh, so right. Russians are being canceled at a global scale. Mm -hmm. And I have empathy yes. for the people of Russia. So, um, Paul, you know, I want to ask you about Trump's new filing, because what we haven't talked about yet in this conversation is the Great Awakening, the idea that the White Hats are going to be putting, already are, put in, putting in action a psychological operation to wake up the masses. Uh, Putin's doing it with the bio labs, right? And uh, now Trump is mm. really kicking it off with the Spygate revelations. Uh, so tell me about Trump's strategy with this RICO filing, uh, Paul. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting filing from uh, yesterday where he brought a, uh, a civil RICO action against a whole bunch of the usual suspects, you know, so Hillary, the DNC campaign, John Podesta, Fusion GPS, Perkins Coyle, the whole, all the whole bank shoot. Um, and I've read through the filing a number of times now, and there's only a couple, there's, only, well, there's two sort of new things that jump out at me. One is that, I mean, you know, the whole background to Spygate. Um, one is that it was Dolan, Charles Dolan, who who uh, came up with the, uh, you know, the, 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 some of the more salacious material that found its way into the Steele dossier. So that's one thing. The other is that, um, it, what is the other one now? I've forgotten. <laughs> oh, no, it was, it was the fact that jo uh, Rodney Joffe from Newstar was actually spying on the White House communications. I mean, people say this is like this is like Watergate all over again. No, 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 no. This is a thousand times worse than Watergate. Watergate was President Nixon, you know, trying to cover up stuff that he, you know, that these guys he didn't know what they were up to. He was trying to cover up after the fact. This is political operators basically spying on the most secure communications in the country, in the United States which is the private internal communications of the White House. And of course, the stuff that they, uh, the stuff that, 
you know, that was sent to and from. This is treason. This is like James Bond stuff where they're, they're, they're no, getting I'm, involved with, you know, the most secret communications that have to do with our, our sovereignty and national security. How, should, how can a contractor to a contractor to Hillary Clinton manage to get that kind of access? Because that's literally what happened. Um, if you step back and look at the big picture, you've got the Clinton campaign, uh, you know, on Clinton's orders, basically subverting pretty much the entire Obama administration and all the checks and balances that are in place to prevent abuse like this happening, completely throwing them out the window just so that Donald, you know, to smear Donald Trump, to smear him personally, to smear his campaign by spying on him and by inventing stuff because there was nothing. There was nothing. I mean, yeah, there was locker room talk that we heard in October, um, which got him, a, I think, a 15% boost in female voters. Way well, that didn't work very well, did it? Um, but the, the, the uh, but that, that, that was it, okay? I mean, that's, I think it wasn't the same day. Yes, it was the same day. The same day, Julian Assange started releasing the DNC and Hillary and Podesta emails. And those were a problem for uh, Hillary's campaign. So what, I mean, what the DNC had to do was make stuff up. They had to fabricate links between Trump and Alpha Bank. I mean, that's why Sussman is in such trouble, because he is. He's in huge trouble. Not, not just lying to the FBI because of what, you know, what he told the contractors to do. Um, they had to make up those links. And I mean, you remember at the time, Jake Sullivan was putting out press releases saying this DNS traffic between, uh, you know, Trump's office and, you know, and, and Alpha Bank is very suspicious. I mean, you know, all this traffic flying past, you know, it was nonsense. It was entirely made up. Um, not only that, but that was, you know, candidate Trump to sow some doubt in, uh, you know, in the minds of voters that Trump was working with Russia. This carried on after he was sworn in. Um, the executive office of the White House, uh, sorry, the I beg your pardon, the HOP, the executive office of the presidency um, was spied on. That just blows my mind that some little squirt like Joffe, who's an avowed Trump hater and who was promised a, who was promised a job in the administration, you know, when Hillary won, had access to internal White House communications. Well, well they there should be a national security a scandal, a like of which we've never. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I can't believe this hack. isn't on the front page of every newspaper. It's it, only when the newspapers are national... owned by Jeff Bezos and stuff that, that exactly. they're not. But yeah, it said exactly. in the filing that it was hacked, that, that they hacked into yeah. the White House's servers. This is high treason. Uh, and it makes you wonder whose resources were used to do that hack, you know, what was Obama? Of course, we know Obama gave the approval and everything. Um, mm. So, yeah, you know, we got to take a quick break, but I, I do want to talk to you guys a little bit more about this topic. So as soon as we get back, we'll dig into it. Helping their customers achieve global connectivity is the driving force behind this brand story. Satellite phones from Whenever Communications provide voice, SMS, and data services without the need for cellular network. So travel with confidence, knowing you're covered absolutely anywhere on Earth. Satellite communications uh, for me 
started after a disaster that happened in Indonesia. At the time I was in communications, but more of on a local cellular communications. We started looking for different alternatives uh, to stay connected. Cell towers go down, landlines are no longer available, and we came across technology of satellite communications, uh, everything from voice to data. We give people the ability to communicate wherever they want to go, whether it's just helping somebody work remotely, or stay safe, or feel safe if they're going offshore, or have more redundancy for their business. So being able to give people that communications and reliability is really joy mine. Visit privatesatphone.com today for a free satellite phone with the purchase of a monthly service plan. We are back talking to Jim Cutler and Paul Ferber about Trump's new filing in Florida federal court. It's a racketeering uh, filing. And, and this is interesting uh, because organized crime, you know, Rudy Giuliani had a lot of experience with that. And he's been part of the Trump team this whole time. Uh, and there's not much of a chance that this filing is going to be successful. So, Paul, uh, you're the one who did the most research on this. So I'm calling on you again. Uh, why would Trump file this when he knows he's not going to win it? What's the purpose? What's the strategy? Yeah, it, it, that's a very good point, Sean. This is this is being done for some kind of strategic reason. Um, I mean, for a start, it's a, it's a civil RICO case. So whether it even survives the first motion to dismiss is unlikely. Um, I think what he's doing is he's kind of, he's putting some things in writing. Well, he's putting some things in legal documents so that he can't be sued for defamation. That's one aspect of it. Um, if you remember that all the outrageous things that were said about Kyle Rittenhouse were reported on by the media because they happened to be in legal documents and in court filings. So that's one, that's possible, possibly one avenue. Another, I think, is just keeping Durham front of mind. Um, Durham is kind of working his way through the minutiae of his current cases. You know, there's, there was, a, you know, a Sussman had a response and Durham slapped him down quite spectacularly, um, saying that, yeah, what he was doing was very material. But, you know, there's been no movement. There's been no movement that we can see till then. So, is it possible that Trump has just kind of set up a parallel communications channel about what's really going on with the prosecution of Spygate? I think yes. I think that's very likely. And I think that there, there are certain aspects of this civil case where that you know he has some maybe some advantages that that Durham doesn't because Durham is operating with in secrecy with a grand jury. And the only thing we see is the odd filing. It'll be interesting if it goes further. I mean, you know, even if it does survive a motion to dismiss, the defendants will then like apply to move it to the Southern District of New York. Um, and in which case you can kiss any kind of favorable result goodbye there, even though, of course, Donald Trump. But this is gives Trump an opportunity. New York Dem, yeah. <laughs> this gives Trump an opportunity on Truth Social and everywhere else to talk about every detail of this scandal at the top of his lungs, put it in the public yeah. record and everything. And all the while, Durham's got his parallel thing going on and, and he can mm. drop uh, more and more bombs along the way. Um, I want to change gears when I talk to you, Jim, about this idea of uh, Elon Musk I think he's an important character to discuss because to me, I can't even believe one human being has that much power. 
because he's not just the owner of an electric car company. That people try to just put him in that box. I mean, this guy has the most advanced rocket company in the world. Okay, SpaceX, right? And rockets are very important for military, for satellite. Uh, for getting us off of Earth and onto a, another planet, all these things that have to do with strategic advantage, right? In this very war that we've been discussing, but he's also uh, his companies also have to do with robotics and AI and and just all this cutting edge stuff. And yet, this guy won't even buy a new mattress for himself. Literally, his girlfriend was complaining on Twitter that the mattress was uncomfortable, and he said, "Well." Let's just get it repaired. You know, he wouldn't buy a new one. This guy is living below the poverty line. He's just renting or sleeping at other people's houses and stuff. He owns like a, a, a tiny home or whatever. He's not spending his money. He's going to be worth over a trillion dollars. It's all locked into these mega companies in the stocks. And this guy has been saying things that seem more and more based and less and less woke. Over the last few years, I've been watching this progression of him becoming more and more brave, speaking out against this woke ideology. Jim, I was wondering if you could give us a few data points to understand uh, how his thinking and where he might be on the chessboard here of this global conflict. Yeah, I have to say that uh, Elon is an enigma, and I think anybody who thinks they can just waltz in and suss him out and figure out what he's about um, has got a bigger job on their hands than they think. But that said, um, again, we're looking at a person who's either got a lot of balls or um, he just doesn't care. And it's that level of bravado where he clearly feels like, you know, he's um, he doesn't have to worry too much about blowback. So he can go on to Joe Rogan and and get high with Joe and he can go on to Twitter and just say crazy things. He can take on senators like uh, Elizabeth Warren and just talk smack to her and not that she doesn't deserve it because she does. So that says something about the man. He's confident that his place in the scheme of things is um, clear to him. And I don't think he's uh, working hard to figure that out. Now, when it comes to other aspects of our world, our life, the technology we use and things like that, there are very big changes in store. Now, for me, I know a little bit about technology, in the, especially in the energy sector. That's where I had most of my focus. So exotic energy and the ability to create energy uh, out of, um, you know, what uh, they call space time and things like that are things that I'm familiar with. And so is he. So he sees these big changes coming and um, wants to get out in front of it. So notice that when you talk about, well, he doesn't like AI, but he's building AI. What the hell is that about? Well, that's staying in the game. He's got the best technology going. And if he's intending to have an impact, a positive impact on AI, then he's the guy who needs to be controlling that. So I look at him in that light where if he's going to put you know, his money where his mouth is, then that's what he should be doing. And he should be doing everything he can to ensure that 
not just the technology is appropriate, but the ethics behind the technology is also robust and appropriate. Now, yeah. I can say that, but I have no idea how it's actually going to play out because I don't think anybody does, including Elon. Well, Jim, you brought up a good point that it's Elon Musk's mouth. And it, this is the weird part to me. I mean, I've never seen someone with so much responsibility to be running even one of his companies would be an impossibility for me. But he's doing, you know, multiple uh, cutting edge companies here. And yet somehow he has the time to go on the Babylon Bee and do an interview and go on Joe Rogan and these popular shows and stuff. He's got like this major PR aspect to him where he's really putting out a narrative and he's questioning the mainstream narrative. Remember when they had lockdowns and masks and vaccinations and his company was based in California? Well, he moved right. his company to Texas and he spoke out against them and he said, free America, right on Twitter, right when all the globalists yep. were trying to right. shut us all down and make us all think one mm. way, he was thinking and talking another way. He's probably the most influential person on Twitter. So yeah, what are some un other things, uncancelable. Paul, anything... <laughs> Anything coming to your mind, Paul, of how, uh, you know, and I know, Paul, you're not a big fan of Elon Musk, but perhaps you've been collecting data points along the way of how he actually has gone against the narrative. And then also feel free to bring up an example of how he might actually be a black hat. Well, I don't, I don't actually trust him because I'll tell you a funny story. The last time I was in Orlando, I actually met the wife of the pilot who was currently, who was then flying around, flying the shuttle around the country so that people could take one last look at it. Now, the, the space shuttle, you know, has had its own problems. I mean, those are well documented uh, with uh, Columbia and Challenger. But it was still an incredible program. If you haven't guessed, I'm a huge NASA fan. I spent on that trip, I, I went to uh, Cape Kennedy and I spent far too much money in the shop there. <laughs> that technology was shut down by Obama and it was given to Elon Musk to basically form SpaceX. This was a pretty explosive allegation by the original Q way back in December 2017. Um, and he seemed to be saying that Musk was a black hat. I don't know enough about him personally to know whether he really is. Um, I know that his business model seems to be getting government subsidies and tax breaks. It's not really, you know, and, and, and it's and it's pushing the electric car agenda, which is eh, right. It is that really the deep work. state green green New Deal kind of thing. Although Joe, Joe Biden yeah. never likes to mention his company, which is interesting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's been no better performing stock over the last few years. So so there is a really good point to that. But look at what Elon Musk. Uh, tweeted out here. He said on Twitter uh, to Jack Dorsey, this the, the founder of Twitter, that uh, you know he's doing a poll here about free speech on Twitter. Twitter needs to open up their algorithm, mm. open source, and that uh, he's going to do a, a poll about is Twitter free speech enough? And it's a very important poll, and it will have consequences. So when, when the richest guy in the world says, hey, I'm doing a poll about free yeah. speech, you better, you better make the right choice because I'm going to do something about it. That's, that makes the, waves. The, yeah. The cynic in me says this is an old trick. Um, right. You know, people look, people look at this. 
Yeah, people. No, but pe- people. I'm I'm thinking of a wider a wider sort of point of view of this, Jim. People look at this and say, "Yeah, even Elon Musk is railing against all this nonsense by the deep state. He is on our side." No, I, I don't believe it. I think he's just appropriating the reasonable person's objection to it. For now, again, this is entirely unscientific, um, and I have no proof of it whatsoever. So, again, take my opinions from whence they come. Um, yeah, it, it is entirely possible that he's got a role to be the gadfly, and he's playing it to perfection. Yeah, um, you know, by we by always have to be aware of possible, and, uh, yeah, possible controlled opposition, right? Sure, uh, because Trump, Trump, it is very Trump hard to well. get that powerful that wealthy in the mm. system without playing along. And we do have to remember those Q drops where they talked about giving that Elon Musk, giving rocketology to North Korea, our sworn enemy. Yeah. And they look at yeah. what North Korea is doing this week, you know, setting off uh, ballistic uh, missiles. Uh, so yes, uh, th- this is all quite interesting to explore, but I am happy that Elon Musk has stood on the side of freedom publicly on social media I think it has made a dent. It is making a difference and it's helping our side win. Uh, I know that's what controlled opposition does, but I'm still grateful for it while while it lasts. Um, Thank you both for coming on the show. Uh, Really great insights from both of you. Make sure you visit paulferber.net and ethereoc.com to connect with both of you guys. And thank you for coming on, making sense of the madness. We're going to go on a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to give you the final announcements. Hello, everyone. This is John Michael Chambers the creator and founder of American Media Periscope. Now, did you know that annuities are a great way to protect a portion of your retirement portfolio from downside risk? And unlike CDs and money market accounts, they accumulate tax deferred and can participate in the upside of market indexes. And they are probate free and can provide an income you can't outlive. Let a company you can trust help you select an annuity that's right for you. Call the Cleveland Insurance Group at 844-USA-2024. That's 844-USA-2024. Tell them John Michael Chambers sent you. Thanks for watching AmericanMediaPeriscope.net, America's Patriot-only super channel. On March 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern, James Grumvig and Scott McKay will be doing a Zoom town hall event. You can call in, you can ask questions, they'll answer them. It is for premium subscribers only, so make sure you sign up on our homepage. On April 1st and 2nd, John Michael Chambers will be speaking at Clay Clark's Reawakening America Tour event in Salem, Oregon. You can also tune in remotely. It's going to be a great one. Got all kinds of leaders in the alternative world, so make sure you tune in for that event, April 1st and 2nd. On Monday, 6 p.m. Eastern, right here on Making Sense of the Madness, we're going to interview Sherry Walker, who is a was a captain, uh, a pilot for Ameri- uh, United Airlines, and she didn't want to take the vax. So they fired her, won't let her access her 401k, and have blacklisted her from getting an alternative job. She is going to be sharing her story on Monday, 6 p.m. Eastern on Making Sense of the Madness. Up next, we do have Patriot Street Fighter at 7 p.m. Eastern. Make sure you get my breaking news updates at seanmorganreport.com. God bless all you patriots. Good night and good luck.